And um, I got hot. <laughs> and I thought, well, I saw a couple of young ladies standing, and I thought they were flashing, but uh, <laughs> I know I'm not. So uh, it's hot in here. So who controls the thermostat? This, if we can, everybody's taking off their sweaters, and I'm going to try to talk. And don't go any farther with your clothes than that till somebody can adjust the thermostats. If somebody will get the uh, maintenance man in here, we'll try to cool off the building. Pretty warm. I don't want to forget this because uh, Betty and I have already had a wonderful time this afternoon. We, uh, we pulled into the island. I come from the mountains of South Carolina. And we pulled into to the island today a, a little after lunch. And, uh, you know, when you, you can leave uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the foothills of the Blue Ridge, and drop into the ocean in about six and a half hours, that's a beautiful trip. We had a wonderful time just walking up and down the streets. Now, they tell me that there's 20 miles of paved walking area around Jekyll Island. And I'm a walker, but I, it's just like you never run out. You just keep on. Uh, if, if you're a walker, if you'll join us in the morning early, we'll try to help you make a few of those miles together. What a, what a wonderful experience we've had already. And I want to thank Mert. Mert, where are you so I can get my eye on you? You hear? Yeah, Mert, you know, if you ever talk to people over the phone, you hear recovery. You know, if you listen carefully. And I heard it in Mert's voice. First morning, the first day she called me way back yonder and asked me if I'd come. I heard something in her voice that, uh, that I just knew if I did not know that she works the steps in her life. The recovery is there. And I want to thank you and the committee for graciously inviting us here to uh, Jekyll Island to this weekend. And we're looking forward. I'm looking forward to being through tonight and having a marvelous time of fellowship and hearing some other speakers and just having a wonderful time come tomorrow morning, starting tomorrow afternoon, rather, not tomorrow morning. I've... Uh, I've I've got a friend here, Bob. Y'all have known him. I asked him how long he'd been coming down here, and he said about 10 years. Bob did something for me in in my sobriety that uh, about 10 years ago that I didn't have there. You know, if you don't grow in your sobriety, you'll dry up, and you just might get drunk. And and I try to make some progress uh, on a daily basis in my recovery. Uh, Bob introduced me to tapes about 10 years ago. And you know, in the big book, there are 44 stories personal stories, including Dr. Bob and Bill's story. There are 44 of them. And if that's all you read, you'd only hear but 44 stories, and you can just keep on reading those over and over. And Bob introduced me to tapes. And in, in tapes, I'm able to hear people from all across the country and understand how they recover. If you if you don't use tapes in your recovery, I'd like to suggest that you start. And that's not a plug for Bob. If it plugs, it's all right. I just want to help help you in your recovery because I see so many young people here tonight. There are two things at Jekyll Island I've noticed already that makes me know that I'm going to like this place. A lot of young people. Just a lot of young people. And that that helps me understand that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is going to continue to grow. And we not only have come of age, we're going to go on into our age of uh, recovery. And the other thing is that uh, we got decaf coffee. You notice that? <laughs> when I came to the program, by God, you drank straight coffee or you didn't drink coffee. And, you know, most time them having cream. Who ever heard of alcoholics using cream? Well, now we've gone to decaf. And I really appreciate that because I've reached, I've reached the age of, uh, I always look see if there's a decaf pot and I always try to see if there's a bathroom close by. <laughs> Bob asked me this afternoon, several of you have, and I, I don't really know why you're asking me about how long the meeting's going to be. I'm just going to talk as long as it takes to get it over with. But Bob said, you want me to put on a, 
60-minute tape or a 90-minute tape. And I said, no, let's try an hour and 20 minutes. And uh, we'll see what happens. I want to tell you this story I heard has to do with uh, with uh, length of talks, but I've heard it from a minister friend of mine who uh, told it to me a long time ago. He said that he uh, learned this, and every time he'd go to a church and every time he preached on Sunday morning, he would start about 25 to 12, and he would be through with his sermon at 5 minutes to 12 every Sunday, and he'd stop. And he would do this religiously. He never had to look at his watch. He just did it. One day after he'd been at that church, that particular church, about four or five months, one of the uh, brothers in the church came up to him one Sunday morning and said, uh, Reverend, how do you uh, how do you stop every Sunday morning at 11.55 and we get out of here and every Sunday I beat the Baptist down to the Shoney's restaurant? Uh, how do you do it? And he said, well, it's simple. He said, when I get up to make a talk, I put a cough drop in my mouth. And when the cough drop has dissolved, I just stop. Wherever I am, I just quit. I know it's time to stop. And uh, a few weeks after that, the, the old reverend went to 12.15 and 12.30 and uh, quarter one, and everybody started getting up. And that's when you know when you've gone over, when people start getting up and walking out. But after the service, the same old boy came up to him and said to him, Reverend, <laughs> what happened this morning? And he said, you know, I put a damn button in my mouth by mistake. <laughs> uh, and that's a classic little story. I, I love to tell it because it, uh, it, it says something. I'm, I'm a minister, and, uh, and it says something about what I probably ought to have done uh, to, to shut up some. Let me tell you another story. It does not belong to me, but I won't tell it anyway. You know, we borrow things in AA. It, it, one of these days is going to be mine. But right now, I'm being honest, it's not my story. It was just told to me, but uh, I heard it from a lady named Bessie. Uh, telephone rings, and a quiet little voice says, Hello. And the voice says, Let me speak to your mama. She's busy. Well, let me speak to your daddy. Daddy's busy, too. Uh, anybody else there? The firemen are here. Let me speak to the firemen. They're busy. Anyone else there? The police. Well, let me speak to the police. They're busy. <laughs> well, what are all these people doing? They're looking for me. <laughs> I love it. It's a, it yeah, I, when I tell that, I, I like to say, that little fellow's going to grow up to be one of us, I guarantee you. There's <laughs> no doubt in my mind he's going to be one of us. I got a sponsor in North Carolina. He was my original sponsor. And, uh, and he, uh, he tells me that you gotta have some humor in your, in your recovery. And I, I try to put some in there. I might get serious after a while. I don't know. Uh, I might and tell you some things, but I got one other story and I'm not gonna take long to tell it, but I think it's just, it just says a lot about, uh, attitude. You know, if you don't have a good attitude, you are not gonna stay sober. I heard that. My God, it kept just running out of my ears. I heard it so much. Change attitude, Ray. George would say to me, Ray, you are stinking. Your attitude's stinking. Well, let me tell you this story. Big, tall Texas boy. Six foot six. Weighed 190 pounds. He was hard as nails. He married a little petite five foot two 
115-pound lady, and she had everything proportionately in the right place. They got married in Greenville, South Carolina. They were going to head toward the mountains, and they started down toward Clemson, which is only 30 miles away. And the old boy said, shoot, I can't wait to get to the motel. He just pulled off down Clemson about 30 miles away and went in and got a room for the evening. First thing he did was go in the bathroom and uh, came back out and after a shower and stood there in front of her in his birthday suit and pitched his great big old jeans over in her lap and said to her, get in those things, sweetheart. And she said to him, you know, good and well, I can't wear your jeans. He said, put them on. And she crawled in them and looked out to fly, said to him, I told you I couldn't wear them. He said, that's the message I want you to get. From now on out, you're married to me. I wear the pants in this family. And she didn't say a thing. She just went on in the bathroom, carried in one little hand the little things that she was going to wear for the evening activities, took her shower and came out with those little things on and had her little size four panties in her hand. She threw them over at him. And they hit him in the face, kind of hung off his nose and said to him, get in those panties, big boy. He held them up and he said, you know I can't get in your panties. And she said, if your attitude doesn't change, you will never get in them. <laughs> My wife saying, are you not comfortable yet? Well, I think I am. I, I think I'm comfortable enough with you to start doing some serious stuff. Isn't it fun to be an AA? My goodness alive, I have a great time. I have so many friends that I didn't know would exist. In all of my wildest imagination, I never thought anybody would ever invite me to Jekyll Island, let alone talk to you, much less even come down here, you know. I was the kind of man that nobody wanted to be around when I was drunk. I was born in a little town up in North Carolina. I'm a, I'm a mill village man. Some, some of you in Georgia might know. God, I go some places, don't even know what a mill village is, you know, and I think, man, man, you are bad shape. But you know, I see your head shaking. I, I was raised in a low mill village. My dad worked in the cotton mill. My mother worked in the cotton mill. My granddad worked in the cotton mill. And everybody I knew worked in the cotton mill. And I was called a lint head. I didn't like that. I did not like it. My dad's an alcoholic. Uh, he, he had the habit of getting drunk all the time. And I didn't like daddy. I didn't like where I lived. I didn't like Mama because she was always fussing at Daddy. You know, fussing and drinking kind of went together in my family. Everybody fussed when my Daddy drank. And I didn't like that old man. My dad was drafted in the Second World War back in 1942. And I, I prayed for him the four years that he was gone. I prayed that he would not come back, that he'd get killed. You see, Dad was a periodic drunk, and I could never predict when I got home from school whether he was going to be drunk, passed out on the front porch, laying out in the front yard, or sitting up there mouthing off with somebody and embarrassing me. So when he was gone, Mama didn't fuss. I could bring people to the house. You know the story. I see you shaking your head. So I prayed that he would not return, but he did. Two things happened in my life. I swore to God that I'd never be like him. And I swore to God I'd never have anything to do with God from that day on. Prayers were not answered. Why did I need God? And I began my life in that direction. I learned a lot of things from my dad. They tell us if you are, if we, if our parents have us till we're five, six, seven years old, and, and they've already formulated most of our thinking. Uh, they've 
instilled within us a lot of thoughts that will always be present. They'll never be changed. I learned some things from my dad. The biggest thing I learned from him is that I learned how to drink. Now, we lived in a three-room house, and it had a little pantry by the side of the kitchen. My mama kept flour and meal and good stuff to cook up in that kitchen. Somebody knows they've, they've been there. And uh, my dad couldn't drink in the house, except the only place would be the little pantry. And dad drank in the pantry. That would be the place he could keep a bottle, as his bar. Now, this is the way my dad drank. He would go into that pantry, shut the door. I'd hear him. I'd hear it rustling around. And he would uh, go, God Almighty, that's good. Uh, you know, choke. And then he'd come out. And about three times in, he'd forget to shut the door. And I'd watch him. And what he was doing was this. Back in the corner of that little closet was a bag, and in it was a jar. And in that was white lightning. And he'd strip off the top, in the back, turn him up a drink, shake like a dog, screw it back on, come back out. About three or four trips in, he got to feeling good. And he'd want to dance with Mama. And he would uh, pet her up a little bit, and she wouldn't have nothing to do with him. And she'd start fussing, Daddy'd be gone. What intrigued me was the moments before he got mouthy. He felt so good. And I thought, if he's ever gone, and, and Mama's not home, I'm going to get into that stuff. And one day that miracle happened, and I did just like he did. I shut the door, picked up the bag, turned the lid, and turned it up. I blew like he did and said the same things he did. It didn't take more than one for me. And a little while, I'll tell you what it was, what it was like. I didn't feel good. I'm not sure alcohol ever made me feel good. But what it did was this. When I had a drink, didn't make any difference if my dad was an alcoholic or not. I liked the old boy when I had a drink. And Mama wasn't a bitch when I had a drink. And it wasn't bad living in a mill village when I had a drink. It wasn't, mad, it wasn't bad being anything and anywhere when I had a drink. And I want to tell you, I pursued that almost to death. Not feeling good, but escape from reality. I met a young lady who lived the other side of the tracks. Now, in my hometown, the Southern Railway ran right down through the little town. All the mill houses were on one side of the track except just a couple little little streets. My wife lived on the side where there were very few mill houses. She lived on the other side of the highway, 29. And there in that little town or that little place, I thought people who lived there had everything. I met this young lady, and she had exactly what I wanted, and I went after it. And after a little while, I got it, and we were married. And uh wasn't long that um, I didn't drink much then. I drank a lot before I met her, but after I met her, she was kind of like my mama. She didn't like me to drink. She mouthed at me when I drank, so I didn't drink, except when I wasn't away around her. After a period of time, we had our first child. Was was uh, We were expecting her, and something happened to me that I can say to you, and you'll understand it. I can say to it in a couple of words. 
I had a conversion experience. Now, I didn't go to church. I was saved. You know what I mean? You understand that. I didn't go to church. God got me from the rear end, and my whole life was altered. I made a radical 180-degree change. I began to go to church. My life was different. I had a spiritual experience at that point in my life. Coupled with that spiritual experience in a few years was a call to the Christian ministry. And I wrestled with that, and I talked with a lot of people and attempted to move away from it, but I could not, and I accepted that call to be a minister, which required a lot from me, I thought. Required that I go back to high school because I'd quit high school and gone to work in the cotton mill at 16. It required after high school, college, and graduate school. But in that period of time, in those years, 12, 14 years, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't gamble, and almost never looked at women. I was a good, clean, living man. Something happened in my life for the last year of uh, graduate school, divinity school. I was playing golf with a young doctor who is now in the program himself. And I said to him, Bob, I can't sleep at night. And he said, that's not a problem. Why don't you come by my office? And I did. He gave me something that I'd never seen before, little yellow synchronol sleeping pills. And he said to me, take one of them a night, and they'll do for you what needs to be done. And they did. But something happened. Something began to happen here and here. Those little pills quit working. One of them wouldn't do. And I began to take two of them because tolerance had increased and you can't make 30 pills last a night or a month if you're taking two of them a night. just won't mathematically work out. So what I had to do is listen carefully because this is the turning point in my life in my addiction. I went to see the doctor and I said to him, Bob, Betty threw that bottle away. You know, I laid it on the woman. It was uh, Adam who said, Eve made me do it. When God asked him what went wrong. And I said, Betty threw it away. And he said, that's no problem. Here's another prescription. Now, you see what I've got is two prescriptions, two drugstores, and one doctor. And 19 years later, the whole picture had changed. I was moved into my alcoholism completely because alcohol is my drug of choice. And I learned to drink very quickly after that. Now, I want to attempt very quickly to tell you what happened in those years. Then I want, I want to get into recovery because that's so important. What happened in a few years was that the beautiful lady that I married, that I was in love with, I had fallen in love with something else, alcohol. I had fallen in love with that substance, and I said to her, I don't love you anymore. Awfully hard for a person to love you. When you said to them, I don't love you anymore. Now that started some real problems. Now some of you are trying to get ahead of me. I drank alcoholically as a preacher. Now let's clear that up. I didn't quit preaching. I want you to know that ministers do become alcoholics. And here's proof of one of them. My, my wife and, had, and I had tremendous problems and, and they started real quickly. And those problems kept getting bigger and bigger, and, and I, I kept having more problems in the church. 
And so one of the things that seemed to be a problem for me was that I couldn't stand in the pulpit like this and preach down to people because my alcoholism had made me do things that I was not, I was ashamed of. I couldn't preach on Sunday about sin because I was doing all the things I had to preach about. I just quit. I ran out of things to preach about. And I made an attempt to move from the pulpit ministry and did move from the pulpit ministry to another type ministry, which would be a special ministry. And I worked with people who I didn't have to preach down to. And that went on for a period of time until finally that substance, alcohol, took from me those things that were the dearest in my life. My wife and I finally got a divorce. And then that meant that my children were going to be separated from me. Now, you know, the thing that a man ought to do when those things are happening in his life is try to be concerned about how in the name of God you're going to get those things back that are so important to you that you've lost. But what I was anxious in doing was this. As soon as Betty and I agreed to separate, I went out and found me a swinging singles apartment. Now, I was 40, over 43 years old, and I had never swung in my life. And and I had never had a bar in a Methodist parsonage. They just frown upon that. The church officials just won't let you have bars in their parsonage. Now, two things that I did. I went and got me a, singing, a swinging singles apartment in a beautiful place. It was called the Hilton West. Now, doesn't that sound romantic? And I'm going to swing all over the place. And I went out to the liquor store, and I got me a buggy. See, I had more trouble than you did buying liquor. You you didn't have any trouble. You probably just walked in, didn't you? Think about it. You just walk in, pick you up a bottle, pay for it. You didn't give a damn who you saw. Listen to what I had to do. And you were going to think, how in the world did you ever get to be an alcoholic? Having to buy liquor like that. I'd sit for sometimes 30 minutes waiting for that liquor store to be empty. And then I'd run in and tell a man what I wanted and pay for it and run back out. One day I ran into one of my church officials coming in and I was going out. <laughs> and I didn't speak to him and he didn't speak to me and we never talked about that liquor store to, at any time. <laughs> I went that day and I got me a buggy and I put it in the buggy. I, I had no idea what it was like. I just bought some expensive stuff. I thought that was the best. Remember I talked about learning how to drink? I drank out of the bottle. Never learned any different. Once in a while I'd drink out of a glass. I'd pour it from the bottle to the glass. But I never drank it mixed. I brought that liquor home, put it in that liquor cabinet, and I lived in that swinging singles apartment for a year. I never took a drink out of the bar. And I never swung any. Somebody said, Ray, you didn't have a whoop out. Now, they were talking about green stuff off the hip, you know. I had to get out of that place. I had to figure, I figured out I had to move. Let me tell you how I drank. Nobody lived there but me and an old white, old yellow cat, and he didn't drink. And this is the way I drank. Over 20 steps up in that little townhouse from the bottom, from the main floor to the bedroom. And when I wanted to drink, it was 10 feet in the bar from me. And I walked up those steps, opened up the closet, reached back in the back, picked up the bag and poured me out a drink and walked back downstairs. When that was gone, I 
went up the steps and poured out. I didn't know I was doing that till I got sober. I figured out finally who I was hiding from. It wasn't a cat. It was God. You see, I thought that drinking was wrong. I used to preach some good sermons against alcohol and against alcohol use. I still got them. I ran into them. We moved not long ago, and I got them out of the attic. And I just, I've been spending some time looking at them. Some awful good material. I might publish that material someday because it's good stuff. I didn't live there long and I had to move to a, uh, you know, alcoholics make drastic moves. And I made a drastic move. I moved out of the swinging singles apartment to a retired community. I was 45 years old. And I got me a little duplex apartment in a senior citizens. All people lived around me were old. And I had one little lady that drank with me. She'd come over and drank two beers and she'd leave. That's all she wanted. And I'm drinking, you know how we do, on into the night, on into the morning. Nobody there, calling people and people hanging up on me and my wife, ex-wife, threatening to call the police. You know what it is to be lonely and an alcoholic by yourself? And I said one evening, I'll get somebody over here. I loaded up my, loaded up a double barrel shotgun, buckshot. Walked out in the front yard of that little duplex apartment. I'm drunk as a skunk. Shot the windows out in the bedroom. Ran back in the house. Jumped in the bed. Fell out in the floor. Picked up the telephone called the police. And I said, somebody's shooting at me. I didn't tell this for years. And about three minutes or five at the most, about three squad cars pulled up out in front of the house. Sirens going, lights flashing. Jumped out with her gun, run around the house, saw all the damage done, ran in the house. I just prayed to God they'd not find the gun, and they didn't. When I started to leave, or I walked to the door, those officers were leaving an hour or so later. I looked out in the yard, and it must have been 50 people. Little old ladies, little old men. Wonder what the hell had happened, what's going on. Month and a half later, they were still there in my house. They'd come every day, wanting to know, what do you think happened, Reverend? And you know that story got bigger and bigger. And the more I drank, the bigger that story got. And I, I wasn't lonely. Most important thing was the detective, the last time he came, he said to me as he started out the door, I believe I'd leave that man's wife alone if I were you. <laughs> How crazy we get. I never made the jails. I never got arrested in my life. I drove drunk for years. Never got arrested. Isn't that amazing? Never got a DUI. That's amazing. But I made the hospitals. You see, some of us make different things, and I made the hospitals. I can't count the hospitals I was in from Virginia to South Carolina, all these hospitals, over and over again. The most interesting hospital that I've ever been in, three times, and I think 30 days in a psychiatric hospital is long-term care, don't you? Any of you have been in a psychiatric hospital? Let me see your hand if you've been there as a patient. Lord, how mercy, very few of us. I thought everybody had been there. Well, if you haven't been, you ought to go. Get ready. Just take a week off and go on down there and let them, let them put you in. You know what they do? They lock you up. You know, alcoholics clean up quick. I work with alcoholics today, and they clean up quick. You know, Doc, they just get well. You know, we get on our feet, and then by three days, you'd, har- you'd hardly believe. When somebody said, he's an alcoholic, oh, I thought he was on the staff. And I got on the staff real quick. You know, I'd clean up, and the first thing you know, they'd be asking me to do things. They didn't know what to do with me. Well, the last hospitalization I had in a psychiatric hospital, 
I called the doctor. He'd been seeing me for 10 years. I called the psychiatrist and I said to him, Doctor, I'm having trouble. I'm drinking. Ray said, I didn't think you drank. See, I hadn't told him I drank. The most important thing in the whole world, I need to tell him. I didn't tell him. He said, come on over and I'll put you in the hospital and get you well. And I went. I'd been there before. I didn't know why I was going back for but I went. And he put me in there. Three days later, I'm feeling good. I'm acting like I'm a staff member. And they put me in charge. I thought I was in charge of the adolescent program. See, I was an old man. I was 48 years old. I was an old man. And, and they had about 15 or 20 young kids running around there. And they said, I mean, you know, 15, 16-year-old kids. And uh, I was doing things with them. They thought I was cool. I could talk their language. I knew drugs. See, I knew drugs. And they thought I was cool. And one day it snowed in February. And I said to the nurse, if you can... Uh, Get me some buckets. I'll take these kids out and we'll get some snow and we'll make snow cream. And I was amazed that nobody understood what those kids didn't know what snow cream was. So we got the buckets. We went out, got in the parking lot, scraped it off the cars. These kids sat down in a little powwow circle and they lit up something, got me in the middle of it. And they passed it about. And that hospital's about nine stories high and I was flying on the ninth story, you know. They were there with me. And we floated in, got on the elevator, took our snow up. And the next morning I got enough nerve, this was a miracle in my life, I got enough nerve to say to the doctor, I've been drinking too much. Every day I go out on a pass, give an alcoholic a pass, what does he do? He comes back with a bottle in his belt. And I had two fifths in the back of my britches and drinking and using drugs with those adolescents. And I said, I'm using more here than I can outside. And he, he gave me a pass to go home. <laughs> he didn't believe it till I blew my breath in his face and he discharged me. Well, I made the hospitals. I was remarried, Betty and I were, and I was drinking when I re we, we remarried. I want to tell you folks, how many of you are Alan on me? I see the show of your hands. Bob's got some tapes over here for you that are on the very end of the table. I told Alan Alan materials on the back of the table, so if you get a chance, go by and pick you up something because y'all are sick. Now, let me tell you what my wife did. She didn't know a thing or about Alanon, but she knew she she wasn't no fool until that moment, and I thought she was. I had a political appointment with the state of North Carolina, and I had a pretty good job. And uh, I had registered a Republican and got offered by another drinking buddy a job, and uh, the Republican was about to lose office, and I had to find a job fast. And I, I wanted to go back to the church. So I called and got me an appointment with a bishop. Drove about 100 miles and sat down in his office, and he had... He had my records there, and they were thicker than the big book. <laughs> I said, Bishop, I want a church. I believe I can start preaching again, and things will be better in my life. And he said, uh, Brother Moss, aren't you divorced? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I've never appointed a Methodist preacher to a church who's, been, who's divorced, and I don't intend to start today. And I said, Bishop, I'm fixing to get married. <laughs> I wasn't even seeing anybody. <laughs> and he said, uh, who are you going to marry? And I said, I'm going to marry Betty, the, my ex-wife. And he said, he's a black Mississippi man, very stern. He said, Ray, if you can, if you can do that, I'll give you a church. Well, you know what I did, don't you? Greatest plan in all the world. I drove up the highway a hundred miles. Time I got there, had it all put together. Uh, a little, a little, uh, vodka and a hundred miles will do great things. And I got there, I called her up and I invited her out. I spent more money in the next couple of months on her than I ever had before and since. One night when the candle was lit and the light was low and the wine was poured, I said to this intelligent lady, Betty, will you remarry me? And she said, I will. Now, you ladies go buy you some material. You might need it.
We got married, and I I got my district superintendent to perform the wedding because I wanted the word to get back to the bishop that it had been done officially. And my two children, grown, one of them married, and my son-in-law stood up for us. Now, y'all look like I'm a fool, but let me tell you what I didn't do. I didn't buy another ring because I kept the first one. So I did know some, have some sense. Well, that's enough of that foolishness. It was, uh, it was bad, and it never got better. And we had three little churches. The bishop gave us three churches. And I was angry when they gave me three churches to be the pastor of it until I got to thinking. Alcoholic thinking. Man, three churches of an alcoholic. Oh, well, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. That's a drake in man's paradise. And the people over here at this church would say, Reverend, we haven't seen you in a week or so. And I'd say, I've been working over here. And the people over here would say, Reverend, we haven't seen you in a little while. And I'd say, well, I've been working over here. And the truth of the matter was, I was laid up drunk down to lake. Miracle happened in my life. A real miracle. You got yours and I got mine. But let me tell you about it. I reached the bottom that I could not climb up from. And that's when I called the doctor and he said, come and we'll fix you. And then they didn't fix me. They discharged me. And I went back home to that great big Methodist parsonage out in the country all by itself. Nobody there. Even the cat's gone this time. And I go into that house and I say, I'll never again, never again will I get sober. And I go the next day and buy all that I need to stay drunk forever. Now, the miracle takes place this way. My wife, who had gone home to her mama's one more time, had the only friend in the world that I had left, a Methodist minister, who had put up with all kind of mess with me, came together for a meeting. At least of mine's, and the miracle was this. They remembered an old boy by the name of Bob who lived about 50 miles away, that I used to drink with, who now didn't drink anymore. And they called Bob, and Bob came, and Bob put me in his car, and he did a 12-step call. I didn't know what it was. You remember your 12-step call? You had one? Did you know it was a 12-step call? I don't know what it was. Hell, I was going to the doctor. That's what he told me. We're going to the hospital. Sounded good to me. I'd been there before. I could always get a little help and then get away. And when we got there, I remember what Bob told me. Bob said, going down there about 65 miles, he said, Ray, I'm an alcoholic, and I know how you feel. Now, my wife had told me what I was a lot of times, and she told me where I ought to go a lot of times, but this old boy was telling me that he knew how I felt. I got to the hospital, and the next morning, I must have passed out because the next morning I woke up. Now, I knew it was a hospital. I'd been there a lot of times in a hospital. And I thought, now, if I can just find out where I am. You ever wake up and not know where you were? If I can just find out where I am, I'll be able to get away from here. I thought the next person that walks in this room, I'm going to ask them in such a way that they will not know that I don't know where I am. And when she walked in, a pretty little girl in a uniform, I said to her, honey, where am I? (laughs) <laughs> and she said these words, Reverend Moss, when you were my mom and daddy's preacher, I baptized that young girl. There I was, I'd puked all over the place. I sickened to death. 
And I said to her, honey, who's my doctor? And she told me. Now, I wanted to die, but I didn't. A little while later, Bob came in, another Bob, uh, Dr. Bob. Sat down on the side of my bed. Now, this is the doctor who gave me the first sleeping pill that I ever took. Put his hand out and looked me straight in the eye and said to me, Ray, I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic. I know how you feel. You know, there's something magic about that. There's a magnetic hookup that took place. Here was a man that I respected who was saying to me, I know what you are and how you feel because I've been there. And he said, I'm going to send you to a treatment program. And he did. Next day, old Bob, uh, the 12-stepper came, put me in his car, and I said to him, I didn't have a damn nickel, but I said to him, Bob, I'm going to pay you when I get back home. <laughs> he said, you don't owe me anything. Took me to a treatment program. I passed through the doors, driving down there, and it didn't say anything about alcoholism. It didn't say anything about psychiatric illness. It just said treatment center. And I thought, I wonder what they're going to treat me for. About a week, I got well. You know, if any of you have been, been ever been to a treatment center, you get well. About a week. I got up one morning, packed my bags, and I could not think for the life of me of anybody that would come get me. But I went down to my counselor's office, and I said to her, Dorothy, I'm going to leave today, and I want to thank you, God, you've made me well. And I, I've learned these steps, got them memorized backwards and forwards. And she looked at me and said, Ray, you're sicker than any fool I've ever seen. <laughs> and then she said, go on down to your room. And I thought, well, I started down the room to my room. She stuck her head out the hall and into the hall and said, pray about it. And I said, yours too, lady. <laughs> and I got to that room and I sat down. Two things came to my mind. Isn't it wonderful what the higher power does for us? Two thoughts came to my mind. One morning, about seven, eight years prior to that date, I'd gotten up dressed after drunk, being drunk the night before and probably into the early morning. Got up and dressed, going to a Methodist men's group to be the speaker. Drunk, I know I was. Hadn't had a drink, but I was drunk. Stopped at a stop sign or a stoplight that it was red. When that light turned green, I turned left. And I heard a bump about like that. And I thought I'd run over a rock. And I opened the car door and looked back and there was a young, there was a man lying in the road. Show you how drunk I was. I know what I said. And that SOB walked in front of me. And when I got out of the car, I turned left in front of a big motorcycle. The young man was bleeding. Every bone that I could see was broken. And he was convulsing. Seemed like forever before anybody came. And when they did, the policeman said, as he got some information from me, and I told him I was going to speak at a Methodist men's group. He said, Reverend, that almost killed me, Reverend, across the years as people allowed me to continue my addiction. Reverend, you're going to do what you got to do and come to the hospital. That young man almost died, stayed in the hospital six months. I fed his family and clothed his children out of pure guilt. Why God helped me remember that, I don't know. And right back to back, sitting on that bed, were the, this thought. My son, about 15 years old, shook me awake one morning and said to me, Daddy, you know what you did last night? 
And I said, no. He said, you slap, Mama. And I loaded my rifle, and I was going to kill you, but Mama wouldn't let me. Now, you see, I drank myself into oblivion just believing that I had committed the unpardonable sin by praying that my daddy would die. What if that young man had killed me? Wouldn't have mattered to this old drunk much, but it would have destroyed that young man's life. I got up off that bed and I said to her, Dorothy, I'm going to stay. And I did. Treatment didn't do anything for me except introduce me to Alcoholics Anonymous and help me understand I had a disease and how to do some things factually. But on March the 24th, 1980, when they discharged me and I went to my first AA meeting by myself, nobody carried me in a bus. Nobody instructed me where to go. I just went to my little hometown without a job, without a family, without any money, without any resources, without a place to live. I walked in that little AA meeting on that Monday night, scared to death. Remember, the newcomer is scared, fearful of what's going to happen. And they almost smothered me with love. Gave me 16 names and 16 phone numbers. That's how many people were there. I carried them for years. They meant business. You see, they hadn't had a newcomer in long time. <laughs> you, know, you know what you do with newcomers. By God, you work yourself to death, stay sober. Sometimes we don't worry too much about the newcomer, but they, they did a lot of things for me. They kept me sober. They, they gave, me a, gave me a job carrying when I was three months sober. I had sworn to God that I'd never carry a church key in my pocket. I'd never open another church door as long as I lived. I was through the church. Three months sober, they said, we want you to chair the meeting. Man, I thought, what in the world? Them asking me to chair the meeting? Now, what I had to do was go at 5 o'clock and turn on the heat, open up the church door, 5, go back at 6, set up the place after it got warm, go back at 7, make the coffee. Had to open that church door every time I went. And God was saying to me, Big boy, if I say open a church door, you'll open the church door. See? Alcoholics Anonymous has been my life. It is today. I don't do anything that doesn't center around Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife and I have spent the last almost 13 years together. We, we have had the best time of our lives. I've rebounded to a height far greater than that which I ever fell from. God has been I've never had a bad day. Now listen, there have been some hard times in those years, but not a bad day. Because I have applied the steps to my life. Some of you are new to this program. My sponsor, my original sponsor, Old George, says, Ray, if you don't remember your first birthday, you might not have another birthday. And I don't ever want to forget my first birthday. I worked like the devil for it. I went to meet. I had to make a talk when I was 90 days sober. Boy, 90 days was important for me. I I was going to from my little old home group down to another place with my sponsor. He's going to talk. Halfway down there, George said, Ray, when I get through about halfway, I'm going to turn it over to you. And I said, do what then? He said, tell your story. And I said, George, I can't do that. He said, I've heard it around the table. Just stand up and tell it to the people. My first birthday. I'm going to tell you who was there. See if you can remember who was at yours. My wife was there. 
My two children were there. My son-in-law was there. My mother-in-law. My brother-in-law, my sister, some of their children. 200 people came. I thought to see me pick up a chip. They really came to an AA meeting, but I, I thought they came to get a chip, see me get a chip. And the old boy Bob that carried me to detox, my 12-stepper, spoke. Not a privilege you get to ask people to be your speaker. And when that meeting was over, I picked up the chips and the applause had stopped. I looked around for my son, who was at that time about 19 years old. He was a strapling submariner. I couldn't find him. And then I remembered. I taught him well. My daddy taught me that men don't cry and men don't hug. And I walked out that door, down in the parking lot, under the light, stood this old boy. I moved toward him. I hadn't hugged him since he was a young man, little boy. I walked toward him. He walked toward me. The closer we got, our arms went out, and he embraced me with tears in his eyes, sobs in his voice, and sobs in mine. He said to me, you're the best daddy in the whole world. You know what I had to do to get it? Don't drink. Go to meetings. Read the big books. Work with other alcoholics. It's that simple. All of it came back. My dad was sober six years in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. That SOB that I hated so much called me one day from Green, from North Carolina, said to me, son, I need to see you. I said, dad, I'll be up tomorrow. I knew he was drunk. I got there. I, he said, I'm sick. He's lying on the couch. My dad was a periodical drunk, periodic, and he'd been drunk about four months. He weighed about 130 pounds, and he had lost so much weight, and he was so sick. I thought he just wanted to see the MD. And he said, I have, uh, I've got a problem with drinking. Now, he had never told me that. Well, I grabbed his little butt up and threw him in the back seat of my car and I drove off about 16 miles to the VA hospital, stuck him in the hospital. Stayed there two months. He got sober. I gave him every chip he ever picked up. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was in the VA hospital, awful sick. I went to see him about the 15th of August. His birthday, AA birthday, was on September 1. I went to see him, and I told him, I said, Dad, now, on the 1st, I'm going to bring a group of boys up here, and we're going to have a meeting, and he's too sick to go to an outside meeting, and we're going to give you a chip. It's your birthday. And he liked that. Well, he didn't make it. He died. And I had that chip. I carried it with me. The funeral home when nobody was around, just me and him. I opened up his pocket as he lay there in that casket and I stuck it in. And I looked at him and I said, you know, you're a cold sober. <laughs> what a fellowship. I hated him and when he died, I loved him. Up in Greenville, South Carolina, they call me Reverend Ray in AA. Isn't that a wonderful name? Couldn't be any better. Reverend Ray and AA, I, I get to do a lot of uh, funerals. You know, AA people do die. We think we're going to live forever. You get sober, get feeling good, you think you'll live forever. Something will, something will get us. Um, and they die, and I have AA funerals. I, I, I preach funerals for AA people. And I marry AA folks. God, I've had a lot of AA weddings. You know, we fall in love sometimes in the program. <laughs> sometimes outside the program. 
I don't ever do any counseling to AA people. They've been married three or four times anyway. They don't need any counseling. They know, they know more than I know anyway. So have a wonderful time. I went on uh, March 24th, 1980, see my district superintendent. I wanted to take those little churches back. I need a job. And he said to me, Ray, the bishop and I have decided that we're going to put you on leave of absence. Now, lest you believe anything different, they said, we're going to fire you. And they did. And I got me a job in the cotton mill where I first worked. I was unemployable. I'd go around looking for jobs and people would say, what you been doing for the last 25 years? And I'd say, well, I've been preaching. Right proud of that, you know. They said, well, brother, we're not hiring preachers today. I couldn't find a job. So I went to work in the cotton mill. About a year later, a fellow called me and asked me if I wanted to work in a treatment program, and I accepted that. I let him be my higher power, and I, I don't think it was a mistake. I've been doing that ever since. But let me tell you one of the miracles that took place in my life. They, the, the superintendent called me about three years after, after I'd been sober three years. I was down in Florida working in a hospital. And he said, we want, we want to put you back in active status. Isn't it amazing what happens when you get sober? I wasn't worth a damn to them until I got sober. Then when I got sober, they recognized that I might have something that I could offer. So they wanted to put me back in full status in the church, and I accepted it. And, you know, I have to be honest with with them and with you. I accepted it because I had 25 years of retirement built up, and I was going to get it someday. And that was my selfish reason at three years sobriety. A couple years later, they called me and began to talk with me about needing some training to help ministers understand what alcoholism is. And they called on me. And they invited me to North Carolina to, to teach a seminar to a couple of hundred ministers. And that was the first one. And it's opened up doors. And now I'm, I'm the instructor for them. Isn't that amazing? And bas- basically what I can tell them is what happened to me and what happens to them and what could happen to them. And talk to them about the disease that we have and about how we can get sober and about Alcoholics Anonymous and what takes place in a person's life who in that 12th step has a spiritual awakening. I said to a young man tonight, we were talking before the meeting, and he said he, he had not successfully worked the steps yet. I said to him, you won't, you won't find a change of life until the 12th step is accomplished. Until you have that spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. You see, I had spiritual awakenings and spiritual experiences in the church before I became an alcoholic. But the one that I had in AA, as I worked through the steps, changed my life to the point that I am no longer the same man that I was. I'm entirely different. And other people know that. By the life I live. If you haven't worked the steps. And if you don't continue to work them. Then life. Uh, can become a problem for you. I don't even have a cough drop. I don't know what time it is. Must be about time to stop though. Um, you're a beautiful. B- bunch of people. I want to spend a lot of time with you this week. I want to learn from you. Because I learn from every person that I meet. I learn from the young people who just got here. Because they're teachers. And I learn from the 28-year-old folks who've been here. 28 years. I just met this lady. And we learn from each other. And that's the fellowship that we're in. 
little boy was going to school for the first time, six years old. Mama dressed him up, put on his best. New pair of sneakers, brand new pair of pants, nice little shirt, slipped him on a little jacket, combed his hair, walked him down to the bus stop, stood there, put him on the bus, and the bus drove off, and she cried and walked back to the house. Some of you have done that. About 2.30, when the bus was going to be coming in a few minutes, she walked down, waited on the bus. It drove up. The little boy jumped off. Now, he didn't look like he looked when he got on. He had lost one of his shoes. His pants were torn. His shirt sleeve was ripped. He, he, he didn't have a jacket. And his hair was standing straight on his head, and he had two big old black eyes. And his mama looked at him and said to him, Son... Who gave you those black eyes? And the little boy squared his shoulders, stuck out his chest like a little Trojan, looked her straight in the eye and said to her, Mama, they don't give those things away. you got to fight for them. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> fellow said to me, how you get serenity? I said, you work for it. You see, Alcoholics Anonymous was here when I came. I walked in the door, it didn't cost, if it had cost me anything, I couldn't have made it. I couldn't have bought it, I couldn't have paid the dues, it was free. But let me tell you what I've had to do, I've had to work, I've had to work every day for my serenity, peace of mind, and freedom. It doesn't come, it doesn't come without work. So don't believe you're gonna walk in and hang on to somebody's coattail and make it, you won't do that. You gotta work for it. And whatever that work is, you got to do it. I want to thank you, Merck, for this invitation. I want to thank you folks for allowing me to be a part of this fellowship this week, and I look forward to having some good times with you. Thank you very much.